Romans chapter 5. We're going to be beginning in verse 1 of Romans 5. Please read this with me and then we'll pray. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Today we want to lift up our children. Lord, we pray that they would know the reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ, that can only come through Jesus Christ. Our children are born into sin. They sin willfully just like us. They are separated from you just like us. And apart from your redeeming, sovereign grace, they will perish for all eternity. So, Father, I pray that today as they hear from your word, you would enlighten their eyes. They would see their sin as exceedingly sinful. And they would see Jesus as their Savior. And, Lord, I pray that same prayer for us. May we see ourselves as exceedingly sinful. May we not sugarcoat it. May we not excuse it. May we look at it directly. And may we also see Christ as beautiful and glorious, worthy of our worship, our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who reconciles us to you. We thank you, God, for the hope that we have in Christ. May we know it and experience it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems like now more than ever, my life is marked by endless busyness and distraction. See, most days I feel like my mind and my body just move from one thing to the next without really thinking about it. There's always things that need to be done, tasks to complete, yards to mow, people to care for, 
seems like the older I get, the more responsibilities I take on. It's easy to get lost in all of the stuff that I'm doing and lose sight of the most important things. Even in the way that we think about church, this can happen. I know this happens to me. We start to equate our Christian walk with programs and events. You know, if, they, if we're not adding more stuff to the church calendar, then maybe we feel like something is missing. Isn't there supposed to be more to following Jesus? What does it mean to move forward as a church and pursue a relationship with Christ together? Does it mean adding more theology classes or more evangelism training or more outreach events? Adding more money or more people to our congregation. All of these things can be good. We want them. But none of them are ultimate. And we can do all of them and miss the purpose that God has for us. And this purpose that God has for us is not a mission statement. It's not a vision statement. This purpose is a person. His name is Jesus And he is what we need. So next week, David is starting a new sermon series on the seven churches of Revelation. But in his off weeks, myself and Kyle and Keith will be interspersing another series called The All-Sufficient Christ. The All-Sufficient Christ. Our hope in this series is that we would see the many ways that Christ has made provision for every one of our spiritual needs. And we're not going to hit every spiritual need because we have a lot of them. But Christ is sufficient for them all. The answer to life's biggest questions is not a program or an event. It's the person of Jesus. We've been created to know and love him before anything else. Jesus is our all-sufficient Savior. He is sufficient for every trouble, every fear, every circumstance. And those are not just abstract ideas and Christian cliches. They become that, I know, sometimes. You see, the person of Jesus, he's a real person, right? He is alive. He is reigning as king of the universe. And we really can know him and love him. We don't want to get clouded in all the distractions. We want to remember things that are big and ultimate and defining that put everything else in its place. So today, I have one goal. I want us to see and enjoy Christ as our all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ is our all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. That's what I want us to see today from Romans 5. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So first, the bad news. The bad news is that your biggest problem in life and my biggest problem in life is that we are sinners. We have rebelled against a holy God. This is my first point. This is true for every person on the planet. See, there are times when we think we have bigger problems than this, don't we? Sometimes I think my biggest problem is a mistake I made at work. 
or that Wendy's got my order wrong when I went through the drive-thru and I ordered 10 double stacks, plain. It's not hard, right? 10. Yeah, I have a lot of kids. They like their cheeseburgers, right? They like their double stacks and they like them plain. Only cheese. <laughs> Get it wrong. It's okay though. Forgiveness. There's room for that in the Wendy's drive-thru. But in that moment, that's my biggest problem. That's what I think, right? My biggest problem. Maybe you think your biggest problem is your finances, your job situation, or maybe it's just somebody else, right? If I didn't have to deal with this person, my life would be so much better. Maybe you struggle with chronic illness or disease or emotional distress. Maybe you deal with things like debilitating depression or anxiety. All of us will at some point suffer and die. Right? Are these our biggest problems? These are problems, but none of them is our most serious and deepest problem. You see, your biggest problem and mine is that we are sinners, and because of our sin, we are separated from our Creator who made us to worship and enjoy Him forever. Now, you might be thinking that that sounds a little unrealistic. I know I've told some lies in my life. I mean, I haven't always been good to people. Um, I did some bad stuff when I was a kid. But come on. Doesn't it seem a little extreme to say that my biggest problem in life is my own sin? And my answer to that is this. It only seems that way if we define sin and evil and goodness however we want. But if we let the Bible define those terms for us, if we submit ourselves under the teaching of God's word, then this truth is unmistakable. Let's look again at our, our, our passage in, in verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What kind of person needs to be justified? Not an innocent person. An innocent person is already justified. A person who is guilty needs to be justified. What about this word peace? See, Paul doesn't say that we have peace with God because we're good enough or because God's just a nice guy and doesn't really care about sin. No, the only reason anyone has peace with God is because they have been justified. What did we have before peace? War, conflict, anger. Now look down in verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? We can't talk about justification by the blood of Christ until we get the wrath of God right. We need peace with God because without it, all we have left is his wrath. That's our biggest problem. We will all face the anger and punishment of God. So we don't have to go very far from our passage to see this in other places. Romans 1 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Romans 2, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 3, 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 4, we see that the law brings wrath. The wrath of God against our sin is our biggest problem. We don't often think about sin this way, do we? For many of us, sin is usually something to toy with, to see how close we can get to it without really getting to it. When we get to that imaginary line, though, we often find that our hearts have already been overcome with that sin, and we feel incapable of saying no. We make light of our sin. We pretend it's not really that big of a deal because we usually don't see any immediate negative effects. If it's not hurting anyone, then what's the real problem anyway? The real problem is that we have sinned against a holy God, and he requires a payment for our sin. We must never forget this truth. It seems old, it seems antiquated, it seems unnecessary in our modern world, doesn't it, that God would require a payment for the wrong that we have done. But we must never forget this truth. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he told them to not eat of one tree. What did he say to them? If you eat it, you will surely die. To rebel against a holy God is treason. It's an attempt at mutiny. It's a slap in the face, an act of aggression towards the one who created us, who sustains our every fiber, who feeds and clothes and designed us for his glory. See, God established everything, the entire universe, in such a way that when we worship him, and find our hope in him, we are most satisfied. We get the most good. But to reject that, to rebel against it, is to say, no thank you, God. I know better. I can do this on my own. I've found something better than you. And see, that's not just a mistake that we make. That's intentional rebellion. This is what sin is. It's a power grab and an attempt to usurp the authority and throne of God. If you're a child here and you are familiar with the children's catechism, what is sin? Sin is failing to do what God commands, right? In what ways do we sin? Answer, we sin in thought, in word, and in deed. What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves the anger and punishment of God. We teach this to our children. This has always been the case from the beginning of mankind. Even though Adam and Eve didn't die right away, they did die. They got kicked out of the garden. But why didn't God destroy them right then? Because we read that God took the skin of an animal and he clothed them with it. You see, that was the first sacrifice. That animal died, shed its blood, so that God's wrath would be appeased for a time. 
And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see how that same exchange was developed. God gave the Israelites the entire sacrificial system as a way to maintain their relationship with him. So day after day and year after year, priests would enter the temple and slaughter bulls and lambs and goats on behalf of the Israelites. The animal had to be the best of the flock, no spot, no blemish. A perfect, spotless lamb would be killed so that God's righteous wrath would be satisfied for a time. To be a priest under the old covenant was a bloody job. They spent day after day offering sacrifices repeatedly for their own sin and the sins of Israel. But what does the book of Hebrews say about these sacrifices? It says this, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Here's the key. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So not even the old sacrificial system was enough. It was not sufficient to deal with sin in any permanent way. How do we know? Because the author of Hebrews tells us they had to be offered continually, every day, every year, over and over. If those sacrifices were really sufficient to pay for the sin of Israel, they would have ceased being offered. There would be no need for any further sacrifice. But they didn't cease. They continue day after day. Because you see, our biggest problem, their biggest problem, is that they're sinners. And God's wrath was upon them. Each of us owes a debt we cannot repay. We will either pay for our sin with our lives, or there has to be another way. God has to make another way. And that's exactly what he did. Let's turn now to the atoning death of Christ. Look again at verse 1. Since, therefore, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. But how? How does this happen? Look at verse 6. While we were still weak, Christ died for us. And notice this little comment Paul makes about the work of Christ in verse 7. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. See, Paul's contrasting the difference between the love of God and the love of man. Is there anyone you would give your life for? I mean, really, think about this. Suffering, death. Is there anyone you would undergo pain 
and suffering and death for? A spouse? Your children? A really good friend? Maybe? <laughs> That's about it though, right? I mean, when we're really honest, we're, we're pretty much limited to family members and really close friends. That's a pretty short list when you really think about it. I know that's true of me. I can think of about a handful of people that I would probably be willing to die for on my best day, you know? And when it comes down to it, I'm pretty scared I would actually just chicken out even for those people if I'm really honest with myself. But then Paul, again, in verse 8, reminds us that the love of God is not like the love of man. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now let's consider this for just a few minutes. If you're like me and you've grown up in the church, the gospel preaching church, you've heard this verse a lot. We get used to hearing this verse and we tend to move on from it too quickly. Let's ponder for a moment what Paul is saying because I don't want us to miss the glory that's here. Because Paul has actually put his finger on a huge problem, a huge theological problem, and he's also solved it for us. Look again at verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God loves us, right? That's good news. But here's the problem. I just spent the entire first point Talking about what? God's wrath against sinners. So does God love us? Or does God, want, or does God hate us? Does God want to destroy us? Or does he want to save us? Is he angry with us? Or does he want to forgive us? You see how this is a problem? And the answer to all of those questions, of course, is... Yes. Yes. And this gets at the very heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is exactly why. This problem right here is why Christ came to earth to do what he did. He came to deal with this problem. How could it be that the Father deal with sin and put his deal with sin and put his amazing love on display? How can God offer forgiveness of sin without denying his own holiness or justice? Because you see, God cannot overlook sin. He can't just say, oh, I know you said you were going to die if you sin, but it's not really that big a deal. You're forgiven. No, there must be a sacrifice. We've already seen that. Lambs and goats were not sufficient, but Jesus is. You see, the man Christ Jesus came to earth in a way unlike any other. He was born of a virgin. This was to show that even in his birth, he came from a different line than every other man. He did not inherit the same sin nature every other person before him inherited. As he lived his life on earth, he faced every temptation you and I face, but he did so without sin. He was the perfect and final spotless lamb. There was no one like him before and there has never been another like him since. The man, Christ Jesus, lived a sinless life. The Bible says he fulfilled all righteousness. 
This means that he lived his life the way you and I were supposed to live, but failed to do so. Not only did he refrain from sin, he also perfectly obeyed his father at every single point, even when it meant physical torture and death on a cross. And when he died on the cross, he bore the weight of the sin of his people. He gave his life as that perfect, spotless lamb. And what does Scripture tell us is the value of his sacrifice? We go again to Hebrews 10. It says this, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, church, the work of Christ on the cross is enough for us today. Christ came to do what no other animal or person could do. His work is sufficient for your sin. But don't just take my word for it. Let's see how Christ's work is sufficient from our passage. Look again in verse one. How is Christ sufficient? First, in Christ we have peace with God. Because Christ atoned for our sin, we can have peace with God. Christ is sufficient for you to have peace with God today. This is probably more important than you might first think because some of you, if you're like me, struggle to believe this truth. Do you really believe you have peace with God? Or do you still believe God's wrath and judgment is upon you because of your ongoing sin? When you fail or fall into temptation, do you feel like God has left you or is disappointed in you or that his love for you has ceased until you can get your act together? Church, remember, this is the great promise. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God's love for you has never been dependent upon your performance. His grace has always been absolutely free. You cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. And for that reason, there's nothing you can do to unearn it. You have peace with God because Jesus paid for your sin. It is done. It is finished. It is complete. There is nothing else you need to do to pay for it. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't modify your behavior enough. You can't will yourself to be holy enough to gain any more peace with God than you already have. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross for your sin is sufficient. You can stop striving. You can stop worrying. You can stop comparing yourself to others because you You personally have peace with God. But not only that, Christ is also sufficient for your joy in God. Look at the end of verse 2 and on. 
says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, not only did Christ come to deal with sin, he came to give us an abundant life. That doesn't mean physical abundance or material abundance. It's even better than that. He came to fill us with his joy so that no matter what our physical abundance is or our material abundance is or isn't, we can experience the never-ending, ever-increasing joy of the Lord. How? Because we know As this passage tells us, even in our suffering and hardship, these things are purposed by God to produce a greater dependence upon him. So no matter what is going on in your life, it cannot steal your joy. So don't let it. The work of Christ is sufficient for your joy. Third, Christ is sufficient for godly character. Look again at verse 3. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. If you've ever trained for a race, you can relate to what Paul's talking about here. You ever done a couch to 5K? What were those first few runs like after you got off the couch? They're terrible, right? It's miserable. They're filled with suffering and trial and sweat and pain and probably some choice words. You want to slow down or quit, perhaps. What are they producing? What is every run producing in you? Endurance, right? You go a little bit farther, a little bit faster. So that when, ideally, when the 5K comes, you're not just a person who runs, you're actually a runner, right? You're a runner. You have a running character. If you've trained well, you don't run the same at the race as you did when you first started running, right? Your body is different. Your mind is different. Your entire perspective on running is different. You're a runner, The Christian life is the same way as we experience suffering and trial. Are you suffering? Is your life not what you want it to be? Are you discontent in some way? Be encouraged today because God has given you his Holy Spirit to produce in you an ever-increasing hope in God. God is using that hardship, brother, sister, to produce in you endurance. Keep running. That's going to produce godly character, which increases our hope in God because as we grow in godly character, we see God as our great provider and sustainer. And that kind of hope will never put you to shame. Why? Because God will never fail you. He will always keep his promises. You will never be ashamed of hoping in God. We can run the race of faith with confidence that Christ is sufficient even in our most intense suffering. 
Fourth, the work of Christ is sufficient to remove the wrath of God. This is the main point of the whole sermon. Look down at verses 9 through 11. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Remember that wrath we spent so much time talking about? It's been removed. We can be justified by the blood of Christ that was shed for us. If Jesus reached down and pulled us up from God's wrath, from under God's wrath, while we were his enemies, how much more, now that we belong to him, will we continue to be saved by his life? Do you see that argument from the lesser to the greater? If God loved us while we were his enemies, if he showed his love for us while we were his enemies, how much more, now that you are a child of God, will he care for you and sustain you? How much more sufficient is Christ for you now? Church, that promise is a never-ending fountain of spiritual blessings. We've touched on them, but that's what Kyle and Keith are going to be preaching on more as the weeks come, is how is Christ our continual fountain of sufficient grace? Every trial, every need, every anxiety. If God shows his love for us while we were enemies, how much more will he shower us with blessings now that we are his children? This is an amazing promise. You see, Christ is not just sufficient to atone for our sin, though that is amazing in and of itself, but he is sufficient to give you life to the fullest. If you're here today and you are in Christ, God your Father is not angry with you. Your sin has been dealt with. Your debt has been paid. All that is left for you is the glorious hope of resting in the sufficient, finished work of Jesus. So what do we do? What do we do with this message? Here's some things we can do as we prepare to leave. First, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ There's one more word I want to draw your attention to today in verse 1. That's faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. All of these benefits of knowing Christ only come to us by faith. Faith is simply trusting in Christ's work for you. There are some people who hear this message about Jesus and they will reject it. But others will hear it and their eyes will be open. 
They will see their sin and rebellion. They delight to turn from that sin and follow Christ. They will see Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, as the one that they must worship. They will long to know him and obey him. That's what faith is. It's a trusting, a casting of yourself on the mercy and grace of God. Do you have that faith today? If not, then I urge you, look to Jesus. Do you see him here? Is he wonderful to you? Are you thankful for his sacrifice? Do you see him as your only hope and access to God? Look to Jesus. You might be thinking there's no way God will accept you because of the things you've done. Or maybe the things that have been done to you. But remember, don't forget. It's so easy to forget. Remember, Christ died for you, not after you cleaned yourself up and changed your behavior, but while you were still a sinner. His love is sufficient for you today. His work on the cross is enough to cover every sin. Turn to him today. There's no sin too great for him to forgive, no person too far away for him to reach. He stands ready to save you. Look to Jesus. Others here today might be thinking this message has very little to say to you because you're already a follower of Christ. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I've heard this before. I've responded in faith, so this is old news. Let's go eat lunch. The church, this is where our understanding of the gospel is oftentimes kind of shallow. We never move beyond this good news. We just continue to dig deeper into it. So let me ask you this. Do you regularly forego communion with Christ because you think there's better ways to spend your time? Maybe you go days, weeks, months without spending time in God's word, without pursuing Christ without building and investing in this relationship with a person. You see, this is a sufficiency of Christ problem. We turn to all kinds of other things for hope and satisfaction, but we fail to remember that Christ is sufficient. Whatever it is you're looking for, longing for, your deepest need can be satisfied in Christ. Friends, don't forego communion with your Savior. Why would we? we? Look what we have. Look who we have. The one who, while we were sinners, gave himself for us. And yet we fritter away our time on so many lesser things. Today, I urge you the same. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. One last thing. What happens when this message really starts to take root in the life of a church? The church gets excited about a person, not a program. A person, not an event. When the gospel is central to the life of a church, we don't need to start an adoption program. We can, that's fine. 
We don't need to start a homeless outreach program or an evangelism program. Sure, those things can be good. But when the church is excited and invested in communing regularly with the person of Christ, those things are just going to happen. We're going to look for ways to love, look for ways to serve. When those who have been captured by this truth begin to live it out and put it into practice, who knows what God might be pleased to do? What would our homes look like? What would our church look like if our homes were built and centered and grounded in this gospel of grace? Some of you are wondering how you can experience joy, perhaps, in the midst of trial or suffering. Jesus is sufficient for you. No trial, no hardship can take this away. No suffering, not even death. I want to end with where Paul is going with this. He's building up to the end of Romans 8. And this is his conclusion. Remember, while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us. Christ died for us. This is the end of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? After all of this that he's talked about, the love of God, the death of Christ on our behalf, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will not he also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's not because you're so great that you're a conqueror. We don't claim that promise and go out marching. I'm a conqueror. I can do this. We are conquerors because we, have, we are united to the one who conquered for us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is an amazing truth. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By faith, we are united with him, reconciled to God. No one can take that away from you. The atoning work of Christ is sufficient for your sin today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a glorious truth. This is the gospel message. All of scripture points to this. Everything in our life is meant to be affected by this truth. We see it 
throughout your revealed revelation over and over and over again. Father, I want so badly for our church to know it. But Lord, not just to know these things. I want to know and I want our church to know Jesus. Help us, Father, to look to him. Let's stop comparing ourselves to one another. Let's stop looking to other things to satisfy and to motivate and to change us. We need Christ. So, Father, we confess that this morning. And, Lord, now as we sing about these things, fill us, God, with your Spirit. Increase our love for Jesus. May we leave this place in pursuit of him. And as we pursue him, we tell others, this gospel must go forth. It has changed us. I pray that it would change this community. In Jesus' name, amen.